0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with book designer Chip Kidd about why his TED Talk
1: turned into the 19 most terrifying minutes of his life and about his new book of graphic design for children. Sometimes I would really question whether I was equipped to, to, to write this book because I don't have kids. I know a lot of kids and I don't like them. (laughs) Uh, that's not true Oh, here's Debbie Millman
0: people like to call Chip Kidd a rock star and with good reason in his 30 years at Knopf Kidd has designed some truly iconic book covers like those boxers for David Sedaris that dinosaur skeleton for Jurassic Park and pretty much every Murakami book jacket you've ever seen Chip is the one book designer people know by name, and now they are getting to know him for other work as well. In recent years, he's authored several books, written a graphic novel, and now he's created a new book specifically for children, aptly titled "Go: A Kid's Guide to Graphic Design." Chip Kid, welcome back to Design Matters.
1: Why thank you. It's an honor to be here again.
0: So, Chip, I want to start with two fairly controversial questions. Good. (laughs) Last year, you spoke at the TED conference Mm -hmm. and rocked the house with your brilliantly funny presentation. And when I watched your talk, I couldn't help but notice you wearing some really funky glasses. (laughs) Um, They only looked like they had half a frame. right? So, like, where can you get these glasses? Is it a whole new... Fashion statement you're trying to make?
1: Okay, so here's what happened. <laughs> Ooh, so, getting a story. I had the glasses and they were like my signature glasses. I called them my Robin mask. And so, two weeks before I'm supposed to go on a TED, a certain person I love sat on them <gasps> and no. broke off the right temple. Okay. They were custom made in England and there was no way it was going to get fixed in, in time. But what I found was the design of the glasses was such that they could sit on your face and still hold up. You actually didn't need the right temple for them to stay on your head. So I thought, well, that'll be interesting. I'll go on TED, and half my glasses will be missing, and people will think that's weird. But maybe they won't notice because the glasses will be perfectly straight. Okay. Uh, P.S. I, my name for my TED Talk is the 19 most terrifying minutes of my life. That's what it should have been called. <laughs> Uh, Was it
0: really the most terrifying 19 minutes?
1: Well, it was like having a colonoscopy in that the preparation was far worse than the actual thing. But the preparation was excruciating.
0: So tell us about the glasses and then tell us about the preparation. All right. So
1: two minutes before I'm about to go on live, Ted, streaming all over the world. And there's Jeff Bezos in the audience and Al Gore. That's when they clamp on the Lady Gaga skank mic. (laughs) which I referred to right away. Yes, you did. And that threw everything off. And it screwed the glasses up completely, made them tilt because... It was supposed to rest on both temples of the glasses, right? and it only had the one. As if I needed one more reason to panic.
0: Were you, like, ready to throw up?
1: No. I had taken enough medication <laughs> at that point that I couldn't have thrown up if I even if I wanted to. But I thought if people think I did it on purpose, so much the better. And, it, you know... Why, why would they think otherwise? Of
0: course. You're so
1: stylish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wish our listeners could and, see you and, in the studio today with your striped socks and plaid shoes. And you're just divine.
1: Oh, please. It's fall.
0: Well, tell us about the preparation. What was it like?
1: I mean, the thing with Ted, and this is Ted, the main stage, the big deal. Like if if you're at this point, if you're going to do it, they, you know, you you're in constant contact with them for every day for three months leading up to it. Every day. Every day. They will give you as much help as you want.
0: So help in terms of coaching about presenting? and
1: And, you know, you know me. I mean, I've been giving talks for over 20 years now, or 1992, I think, was the first one. And I think I'm pretty proficient at it. But usually, you know, they give you 45 minutes to an hour, no matter who they are. And so they're very much impressing upon you the time thing. And then I started obsessively watching TED Talks online And I mean, that's daunting. Well, I don't know if I should name names, but I mean, I saw people that we both know and that we've both seen live and that we that we both think are amazing. But watch their TED Talk and they're like deer in the headlights watch Isaac Mizrahi's TED Talk if you want to see somebody having a nervous breakdown on stage. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, and he's so... I've interviewed
0: him. He's fantastic. Hello. But
1: I think for this, for some reason, he's holding his notes in one hand and he's got the laser pointer in the other hand and he's flailing about and that started freaking me out and there were a couple other people like that too. So it's like, yes, you know how to speak. Yes, you know how to swim, but now you're going to be in the Olympics. So every Monday for two and a half months... I went down to their offices and just rehearsed. But it wasn't bolstering my confidence. It was wearing it away. It was eroding it. In what way? It's much, much easier to play to an audience of 1,500 people than to an audience of three. To get up and try and – basically do like stand-up for three people.
0: Taking it seriously for three people is a lot harder than taking it seriously for 1,500.
1: Absolutely. It, well, it's not taking it seriously. It's, 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 it's the, the energy. feed. It's the energy. Yeah. It's the energy. That's the thing. And so they'd sit and smile, these three people. And I just think, oh, my God. And, and, and I was kept – I never was made my time. I kept going over to like 25 minutes to a half an hour. So anyway, finally the last week, they brought another speech coach. And they said, OK, look, she's going to be at Rockefeller Center this week in this, in this particular suite. If you want to go, go. And I thought, all right, I'll go. And I was dreading it. And she was fantastic. And she basically said, cut this, cut this, cut this, and you'll be fine. And so when I finally got there, I mean, I was jacked up. But but I was all right, I think.
0: All right, uh, I looked last night. Your talk has been viewed close to a million times. It's
1: excruciating. <laughs> I I can't watch it. I, I've seen and I wouldn't do it completely differently. But the the voices are horrible. The accents are stupid. The you know. It's, well, you play it's a bad. lot of different
0: characters. It's actually really funny. And it's in bad. your official bio on your website, it says something like four hundred thousand. Views, So I thought, well, let me just go check because I don't want to say 500 if it's only 430. Right. And then it was close to 900 with another 100,000 on YouTube. And That's I amazing. Was like, That's a million hits. I, um,
1: <laughs> I haven't kept up, so –
0: well, my other controversial question has nothing to do with TED. It's actually about another conference. Um, why on earth did you kiss Neil Gaiman, who is straight, mm-hmm. hard on the mouth, mm-hmm. on stage at the last San Diego
1: Comic-Con? Well, the quick answer is why wouldn't I? <laughs> well, um, I did
0: hear there was tongue involved too.
1: OK. Here's what happened with that. Neil and I are friends. Um, Yeah, I would imagine. (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't want to take that for granted. No, he's great. And I just did a fabulous book project for him, which is a a commencement speech. It's called The Make Good Art Speech by Neil Gaiman, which was – that was like a dream job of typography like 301 or something. Wow. Take this 18-minute speech that's on YouTube also with a million hits and turn it into a book that people would actually maybe want to buy. He was like, just do whatever you want. If you need illustrators at your disposal, you can have them. But it's all a typographic solution reacting to what he's saying. So, okay, Comic-Con is from Wednesday to Sunday. Wednesday is the preview night. Uh, Chris Ware, who you you you
0: introduced me to.
1: Um, Building Stories, of course, was up for like seven awards. I hope he won something. He won them all except for one. He he didn't win the use of color. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God. Um, I'm
0: going to have to go look at that and see why.
1: Who knows? But anyway, he wouldn't want to go to Comic-Con. He's not big on awards and all that. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go as your emissary and accept on your behalf. So I figured, okay, I'm going to be up there a couple times. And so Neil had been telling me about how he was going to be giving the last three awards, which is like, you know, best book, which is like the best picture. And we didn't plan on this kiss thing. But the other host of the Eisner's was this British comedian. He had said to Neil, we have to kiss. And Neil said, you know, God, this guy wants to kiss me because of the Britney and Madonna Madonna, thing. And I don't know, I'm really not into it. And he said, I'm just really nervous about it. So come the awards ceremony, then Friday night, they get up to give these last three awards and so they announced that Chris had won you know best book of the year for building stories and I and I went up and I just looked at Neil and he just looked at me and he's like come on yeah come on let me have a baby and so we did and and uh it was it was a hoot it makes for a very very pretty picture <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, you know it, it it's it's great um but um he is He's not my type, and uh, he's married, and I'm about to get married. Tell me everything. Uh, Sandy and I are... And Sandy is J.D. McClatchy. That's correct, He has been your yes. partner
0: for about 18 years.
1: 18 years, we're go- and we're going to get married on our 18th anniversary, and we're eloping. You know, the Supreme Court basically decided, so we thought, why not? And we're both seeing this as an excuse, finally, after 18 years, to stop having sex. <laughs> And uh, I
0: hardly think that that's true. But well,
1: it's probably not okay. true. It's probably not true. But we're looking at it that way. OK, good. <laughs> Most married people do.
0: Why are you eloping?
1: Um, Because we can't bear the thought of this big production. Did you see that Saturday Night Live clip from the end of last season, Xanax for summer gay weddings? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, but I was imagining my God. You a have Sex in the to. City
0: type wedding for you guys.
1: No, you have to Google this video. It's brilliant. It's okay. Xanax for summer gay weddings. And it starts with, are you feeling down? Do you feel that you just don't measure up? You've been invited to a gay wedding this summer, haven't you? <laughs> and it's going to be perfect. And that's stressing you out. And that's why we make Xanax for Summergate weddings. And then they stage this whole thing where they're releasing pigeons and, <laughs> and all this thing. But the best line towards the end is this, this woman goes, yeah, when, when Jake and I got married, um, our favors for the guests were a little bottle of water and some Cheez-Its. And when we went to Scott and Kenneth's wedding, we got tickets to Europe at $40,000. <laughs> It's really awesome. good. It's awesome. It's very, very good. But anyway, we w- we just wanted to avoid that. I mean, I'm going to be in my 50s next year. He's in his late 60s. We've been together a long time. So we're doing it at City Hall and then taking a plane down to our place in Florida.
0: Congratulations Thank to you. both of you. Thank That's you. really magnificent. So your latest book mm-hmm. has been released today. hmm it is called Go.
1: Get 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 get, 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 get go. <laughs> That's and what it's called.
0: That is what it's called. <laughs> go. go, 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 go. Yeah, um, Go. A kid's guide to graphic design and the title is a double entendre mm-hmm. as that this book is not only written and designed by Chip Kidd, it is actually written for kids. Mm-hmm. So why kids aside from it working so well with your name? I-
1: <laughs> I owe this entire thing to a wonderful uh, woman, writer and designer named Raquel Jaramillo, who might be better known to your audience as the author of a book called Wonder and under the pen name R.J. Palacio.
0: Wonderful. Now,
1: backing up three years... She had been the art director, I believe, at Holt or wherever they were doing Thomas Pynchon's books. She designed all of Thomas Pynchon's books. unmeet to me, she moved to Workman Publishing and she emailed me one day out of the blue and said, I don't know if you remember me, but um, I'm now at Workman and I'm a creative director, but I'm also an editor. And can we have lunch? Because I want to talk to you about something. And so we did. And she said – I think it's high time somebody did a book to teach graphic design to kids, and I think it should be you.
0: And did you have reservations, or did you say yes immediately?
1: We didn't need reservations. We just walked into the restaurant. It, it <laughs> was It's this place across from Random House that, you know, they always have a table. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, in my memory, I said yes right away. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I mean, to my knowledge, such an exact book does not exist. Correct. So that to me also was a really really motivating factor in doing it. Like let's do the let's do the first one. I put together a 40-page proposal which came together like that. It came together in like 4 days. And I felt really good about it. And most of it is still intact in the final book. And I don't know, all of a sudden it was due. <laughs> And so there was, a, there was a real push then in the last like four to five months to, to get it done. Because for some reason I thought it was supposed to come out next spring. It's one thing to do 40 pages of what the book's going to be. But then, then you really have to figure out, okay, what, how does it start? How does it end?
0: Well, you wrote it and designed
1: it. Wrote it and designed it. The entire wrote...
0: book is by you.
1: Uh, yes. Although there's a lot of Raquel in it. She has two sons who who are the age that we had in mind. So she had great ideas, like, let's have a two-page spread in the beginning that just shows examples of graphic design that kids see every day and take for granted and remind them that, you know, your milk carton and your cereal box were put together by a human being. You know, it just didn't pop out of a machine.
0: You start off the book with a bold statement. You declare, whether you realize it or not, Most of the decisions you make every day are by design. So can you elaborate a little bit on what that means?
1: It's pretty pretentious, isn't it? No, it's not pretentious
0: at all. It's just a bold statement. I'd love to just get a sense of how you came up with it.
1: I don't think I started thinking about who was making what or how things got made until I was in college. And I think as a kid... You're trying to negotiate so many other things socially and growing up and all of that, that that you probably don't think about who designed that exit sign or your clothes. Or I do remember way back something like third or fourth grade where the teacher said, you know, try doing this for a week, like lay out your clothes for the next day, the night before. And it had never occurred to me to do that. And at first I thought, well, that's stupid. I mean, I just decide like two minutes before I'm going to put them on. But th- that sort of forced me to think about it, and then tomorrow morning you don't have to stress about it; you can just put it on and go. I think that's what I mean. All these things are by design; they're by planning. And I think if they're not, that's when that's when you run into trouble.
0: You then ask a nearly unanswerable question, um, and I'd like to read the question and then the full answer. Mostly because I think it's a wonderful answer, but as well, it sort of reflects the tone that you take throughout the book and the way that you've written this in a very relatable, very earthy way. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read about a paragraph. You ask the question, what is graphic design? And you provide both a dull but correct answer and then a far more interesting answer, and I'm going to read them both. The dull but correct answer is that graphic design is purposeful planning that uses any combination of forms, pictures, words, and meanings to achieve one's goal. Now, the far more interesting answer is that graphic design is problem-solving and sometimes making something really cool in the process. There are all kinds of problems to solve—good, bad, complicated, easy, annoying, fascinating, dull, life-threatening, mundane— There are problems that determine the fate of mankind only to you and no one else, and problems that determine the fate of mankind. And some of them are truly unsolvable. But of course, that doesn't stop people from trying, and it shouldn't. But the main thing to learn about graphic design problem solving is that the best solution can usually be found in the best definition of the problem itself. I know that shouldn't sound contradictory and weird, but it's true. Well done. (laughs) Really fun. But I have to ask you, so this is – help. you have to help me understand this because Mm -hmm. I never actually heard it related in this way. Really? A really unique and original answer. How is the best solution – usually found in the best definition of the problem itself. Uh, You know,
1: Penn State, day one, introduction to graphic design, they they were pounding this into us.
0: But so give me an example. What is the best solution that you can come up with that is actually found in the best definition of the problem itself?
1: Well, okay, so I cite the speed bump and um, the history of it, which was in the mid-1950s, and people were driving too fast in a suburban area, And he wanted to slow them down. And the problem is people are driving too fast in an area where you have a lot of pedestrians. So why is that a problem? Well, it's because people could get hit. So you just simply want the cars to slow down. What's going to make them slow down? Well, we'll put up a sign. Well, what if they ignore the sign? All right. Well, what's going to make them slow down that they can't ignore even if they want to? a lump in the road. Again, then I have to backtrack and say, you know, this is a brilliant design solution. It's not necessarily a graphic design solution. The graphic design solution is slow bump ahead. But if you don't pay attention to that, then b- b- boom there you go. That was one example that one of my favorite teachers in college used to talk about, uh, a guy named Bill Kinzer, who, who died quite some time ago. But I've never forgotten that.
0: You have some remarkable statements about graphic design in a way that I haven't read before, and I want to share a few. You state, Graphic design needs your willing participation, even if it's subconscious. Graphic design is message-sending into the brain. It is a cerebral experience, not a physical one. Architecture wants you to walk through it. Industrial design takes your hands or other body parts to appreciate it. Fashion makes you put it on. But graphic design is purely a head trip from your eyes to your mind. How does that happen? How does that happen that it, it becomes a head trip, that it becomes entirely subjective and entirely something that you need to create a construct around?
1: Because it requires your participation. But it requires your participation, in, like, like you just quoted, in a different way than other kinds of design that we're used to. And frankly, part of that could be deciding not to participate, to ignore a sign or to ignore a piece of graphic design that perhaps isn't effective enough to get our attention. To me, it's very special in that way.
0: It's connection, really. It, it's, I mean, it's connection. You know, people ask if if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, then
1: does it make any noise? Right,
0: right. And it's it's sort of the same with graphic design. If you create a graphic design but nobody views it or sees it or understands it, then is it graphic design?
1: It's still graphic design, but it's then it's probably bad, bad graphic design. <laughs> right. uh, no, it's like it's like what Chris says about comics, is, and and people keep saying that comics are such a cinematic art form, and and he says, absolutely not. That's baloney. You sit and you watch a movie. You have no control over the pacing. I mean, you have control over the interpretation, but it's really being laid all out there for you. In comics, you can control the pacing. You can decide what somebody sounds like. You can linger over a page or a panel for as long as you want or just zip right through it. I mean, it's bringing something to you, and then you have to bring something to it. And I feel that, well, first of all, comics are a form of graphic design. Posters and ads and what have you work the same way or are trying to work the same way.
0: Since we're talking about comics, you spend a little bit of time in Go talking about
1: Batman. How could I not?
0: How could you not? Mm -hmm. I learned some new things about Batman reading your new book. You talk about how you believe that Batman has stayed so popular in modern culture. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can share some of why that is, because I found it really fascinating.
1: Well, there's a little sidebar there about the idea that Batman is a great American design.
0: Can you give us some history? Because it was really fascinating that I I didn't know, for example, that the dark Batman was intended to complement the bright optimism of Superman.
1: Yes, it was the same company, uh, what became known... It was National Periodical Publications, which then became DC Comics. Superman first appeared in 1938, and that's a whole saga with Jerry Siegel and and Joe Shuster. They had been trying to sell that concept for 10 years, and nobody would buy it. And then finally, NPP did, and they sold it lock, stock, and barrel to them. And they were allowed to keep working on it, but they didn't have any ownership rights to it. So, So that's an aside, and that's a whole other story. But that was huge, that was absolutely huge. It was the end of the Depression, uh, America on the brink of war. He was the perfect symbol for that time. And and Superman obviously has survived as well. But I think Batman's far more malleable to the needs of the culture if the right people are writing the stories or making the movies or what have you. I think they've had the most success with him. And when I say Batman's a great American Design is just the lore is here you have somebody who had everything, had it all taken away, and then had to get it back piece by piece by reinventing themselves as somebody else who, frankly, that character has a great design sense. And, you know, the idea is that as Bruce Wayne, I can't really get that much accomplished, but as this other thing that scares people that they don't understand – that looks like one thing but is acting in another way. That's how he can get things done that he wants to get done.
0: Do you think that that's at the heart of what makes him so eternally popular? Or is there some other psychological sort of trick to Batman that we don't quite understand?
1: I think it's all of the above. First of all, he's human. So we can relate to that. There's a way that you can adapt the costume. It changes. You can make it look a certain way for a movie or a cartoon. But really what it comes down to is the talent behind whatever version. And by now there's many, many versions, and a lot of them successful, a lot of them not so successful, but we remember the successful ones. That comes down to great writing, great drawing, great design sense, or great filmmaking, or great animation. There's yet a new cartoon out now called Beware the Batman which is overseen by a friend of mine named Glenn Murakami and it's absolutely brilliant.
0: And it, what really astonishes me about Batman is how culturally universal he seems to be to a wide range of ages. So for example And races. Ages and races. You know, you have the sort of hipsters that go to the movie the first day it comes out. Mm-hmm. But then you have all the little kids that mm-hmm. want to dress up as Batman for Halloween mm-hmm. and, and the sort of obsession that they have in becoming this character. So it's this really sort of meta thing about a character that becomes a character that's played by a character. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, but
0: there's something really quite beautiful about it. You wrote a book, a Batman book mm-hmm. called Batman Death by Design. Mm-hmm. And I know we're really here to talk about Go and the fact that Go has come out today.
1: Get, 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 get go. Yes. <laughs>
0: And after we talk about Batman Death by Design, we're <laughs> okay. going to play that trailer for That's our fine. listeners because yeah. it's a real treat that and they're have to about to get. explain it, too. Yes. But talk about writing Batman Death by Design. First of all, how did that happen? Well,
1: okay. This goes back to Neil Gaiman. I was interviewing Neil Gaiman for the 92nd Street Y. They asked me to do it because it was the 20th anniversary of his, his DC Comics character, the Sandman, which was great. And... I mean, that was nervous making, but a lot of fun. I mean, he's got a huge fan base and they, you know, they all show up and it's all sold out and tons of people. And but he was working on a Batman story at the time. And so we geek out about that on stage. And then afterwards, the editor in chief of DC Comics came backstage and said, oh, you should do a Batman story for us to me, like completely out of the blue. And I said, Did well, you fall on the floor? Well, I said oh, – no, I would – uh, sort of. But I mean – I said, well, you, you know, don't say that to me unless you really mean <laughs> don't it. Don't tease me. Don't tease <laughs> me, please. <laughs> I get enough teasing elsewhere. So, um, no, he said, really, I, I do mean it. Follow up. Think about what you want to do. 100 pages. It can be out of continuity. Now, that's a, that's a geeky term for – you don't have to adhere to the rules of what's going on in the monthly comics. That's continuity. And so my editor there is it was the vice president and art director of DC Comics Mark Ciarello, great guy uh great artist and my idea was okay I want to make the great Fritz Lang Batman movie of 1937 with an A list cast and and a huge budget and it's going to be about architecture and it's sort of like Batman meets the Fountainhead meets on the waterfront. It was inspired by uh, the demolition of Penn Station, and then the crane collapses that happened on the Upper East Side about six, seven years ago. Will it be
0: made into a movie? <laughs>
1: uh, this is tune tune in next week. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'd be amazed. I think at this point they've got so much at stake with the films. I I can't imagine they'd do a period one. Because I think they would be worried that it would like block out some sort of demographic, and also
0: something. the continuity would be disrupted. Con- well,
1: they but they've got to jumpstart it though. Yeah. Well, they yeah, and Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, how is this possible? Separate, separate podcast about that, but yeah, yeah, separate, separate one. So, speaking of films, you made a little film. You made a little trailer for Go 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 Go.
1: Yes, um, <laughs> why? So,
0: why did you do that? I've actually been seeing
1: trailers a lot for books now. Book trailers have been around for you know a good you know a long time at this point. Um, I couldn't tell you what the first one was, but I knew that if I was going to do this, I would have to take it on myself and do it myself and and I had written this little theme song for the book just because you know i ha- I was in this band named Artbreak with my friend Marco Patrilli, and a lot of people have asked, "Well, what's become of that, and really, what's become of it is that. We didn't break up, but we went on hiatus because he he had another child with his wife and they had to move to Fort Worth, Texas, and basically so that the kids could have a a better life there than a one-bedroom apartment in the Lower East Side. So what he did then was he got his degree to teach high school math, got a job at Southwest High in Fort Worth, liked the kids a lot, but didn't like teaching math. And then after a couple of years, he convinced the administration to let him start a music program for the kids. And I mean, it's literally a school of rock. It's great. I went down there a year ago, February. I mean, frankly, it was kind of a a pragmatic thing because I wanted to make this video, but I didn't really want to spend a lot of money. So I did all the audio soundtrack of the music myself, sent them a PDF of the whole book. And then he had his kids work on it. And his youngest son does the little narrations.
0: And you do the whistling and the beatbox.
1: I do the beatbox and the whistling. But I also want to emphasize that there is no computer enhancement of the git-git-git-git-git-git-go. That's not done by a computer. That's done by me sitting. Just like this. Yes. And practicing.
0: So let's listen to it.
1: Okay. Gig git 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 go Guide to Graphic Design. How does it do that? Big and small. Scale. Top to bottom. Left to right. In front of and back of. Go! Focus. Positive space and negative space. space, Visual variation.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. I think you can replace the guy in in Family Guy that has that... (laughs) 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 Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
1: I don't watch Family Guy, so I hope I didn't copy it.
0: Oh, no, no, no. He just has that sort of... uh, Stutter. uh, 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 Um... (laughs) in any case. One of the things that I found so interesting about Go is how far back in time you actually go. <laughs> um, you state that mm-hmm. graphic design actually dates back to 15,000 B.C. when our prehistoric brethren created the wonderful cave paintings at Lascaux and then later when we began to use hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. You talk about how graphic design as we know it today is a relatively recent phenomenon. It wasn't even called graphic design mm-hmm. until 1922. What happened in 19 19- In
1: 1922, William Addison Dwiggins, the great book designer, coined the term in an essay that he wrote. As far as I'm concerned, who better to do it? He was was a great hero of mine.
0: You state that he may have made his greatest contribution to the world of graphic design by coining the term graphic design. Mm -hmm. Do you really believe that? Do you think his book covers were better or (laughs) his
1: terminology— I don't, why do we have to pick one or the other? Uh, uh, good. Uh, yeah, good point. He did amazing book design. He did, my favorite of his was the Time Machine, the Random House special boxed edition of of the Time Machine. There's this tiny little picture of what the Time Machine actually looks like, yes, which you shouldn't do, but he—it's so believable. Um, <laughs> but it's is this is just a beautiful, beautiful book.
0: Well. Despite the fact that this is a book targeted to kids, I actually learned a lot. For example, I learned that while numbers were created before letter forms, records that were created – millennia ago, were created by making notches or slashes on materials such as wooden logs and animal bones and rocks, and Mm -hmm. that these slashes eventually became the basis for Roman numerals, which I did not know, which exist to this day. And you most commonly see them on grandfather clocks and fancy watches, but I had no idea that they originated from those slash marks on wooden logs. Well, I have to tell you, I mean,
1: I learned a lot too. Those four pages were so painful. (laughs) It's like, how do I, you know... And and that was part of the process of the whole book. Like, I don't want to bore the audience, but at the same time, I want them to think about this stuff, and I want to tell them about this stuff. And some of it, I'm I'm no expert on, so I had to go and research all this stuff and and then figure out how to condense it into a couple paragraphs. And some I read some of it now, and it just sounds utterly ridiculous. <laughs>
0: no, it's witty, it's charming, <laughs> it's funny, it's 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 totally chip kid. It's that's why it's so great that it's called the kid's guide. One of my favorite examples you include in Go is what you refer to as a masterful example of the use of negative space in contemporary graphic design, Mm -hmm. um, the current Federal Express logo. Yes. How is that a great example of contemporary graphic design or the use of uh, negative space in contemporary graphic design?
1: Well, because where the E meets the X, the negative space between them makes an arrow – and it's not just an arrow; it's an arrow going from left to right. So this was created by Lyndon Leader. Lyndon Leader. I
0: learned that in your book, <laughs> 1994. He worked at Landor when yes. he did it.
1: Yes, I mean, I knew I wanted to use that as an example. But then I had to research, okay, so who did this? Right. And who did he do it for? And when and why? And from what I could discern, it's, it's not an accident.
0: It wasn't a happy accident? No.
1: I think he was brilliant enough to figure it out because he talked about having to actually cheat literally the X height of the X up so that it met the, middles, oh, the middle slash of the, of the E. But it takes nothing away from how brilliant it is.
0: You include design projects at the end of Go, really wonderful, charming design projects. And you talk about them being thought-provoking, maybe eye-opening and hopefully fun. But you, you let people know at the outset that they're not meant to be crafts. And I'm wondering why you decided to make that distinction between graphic design challenges and craft projects.
1: There's a very, very fine line. And I don't know how well I, I maintained it. But, and there's nothing wrong with crafts. Oh, God, God knows. Love, love crafts. Oh. But a lot of these assignments really are about ideas and concepts and problem solving. Create your identity. I mean, that's a pretty major thing but kids are doing it all the time. They're doing it on their phones, they're doing it on the computer, and, and they're creating identities for themselves. To me, that goes beyond what we call a craft with a capital C. That's really thinking about who you are and how you want to represent yourself to the rest of the world. And there's many different ways to do this. And, and so we cite two fictitious examples, a little girl and a little boy, and and what they do for hobbies and and how that influences them making a mark for themselves. And then making it by hand. A big quandary with this book was I did not want to make it into any kind of software manual. Now, obviously, to do a lot of this stuff, you need a computer. I mean, certainly you could blow up an image before computers existed, but now it's much easier to do it and you get better quality. So really, to me, that was, that was the difference. You know, redesign something that you love. Your favorite movie, you love the movie, but you hate the poster. Right. So why don't redesign the poster so that you love it again? Even that to me goes beyond what I would call a craft.
0: Were they all projects that you've at some point undertaken or did you make them all up for the book?
1: I made most of them up for the book. But again, my editor Raquel had a couple of really good suggestions, things that wouldn't occur to me because I don't have kids. I mean that was that was a whole other thing. Sometimes I would really question whether I was equipped to 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 write this book. Because I don't have kids. I know a lot of kids, and I don't like them. <laughs> uh,. And so That's how, you not know. true. Oh.
0: No, I actually think that as, as you were talking about the the notion of of writing for kids, I was thinking that the book actually reminds me a bit of The Wizard of Oz, where there's really something in it for anybody at any age.
1: Well, that also, quite honestly, was the goal. I mean, I think you know, my agent was like, "God, I learned things in here that I didn't know," and and uh, it's like, good. Yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, I could see giving this to a high school student. I could see giving it to, you know, a freshman in college.
0: Anybody that has any interest in graphic design will learn something and and be inspired by your book. Well, thank you. So it seems like... Go has this real educational teaching quality to it. Mm -hmm. Have you been doing any teaching? Are you thinking about
1: teaching? Uh, I mean, I taught at SVA for for six years, and and it was good, but that was enough. But um, I've recently been approached by a group called Skillshare to do some online design classes, and I finally sort of relented. And part of that is because... I mean, I'm I'm very grateful, but at this point, I'm getting at least 10 to 15 emails a week from students with all these questions. And I just, I can't, I can't sit and I'd, I'd get nothing done if I answered all the questions. So I've been approached several times to do online design instruction, and I just, each time I'm just like, no. And this time I said yes, because I can refer them. To, to to this wonderful.
0: So, when mm. when does when do your first classes launch?
1: You'd think I would know. Probably in about a month.
0: Wonderful. We'll have to check it's, on your website. It's, and see. It, well, it's
1: Skillshare, yeah, um, and we'll um, we'll put put a link to it.
0: Wonderful. On July 12, thousand and fifteen, the fourth installment of the uber successful Jurassic Park movies is coming out. It's titled Jurassic World. And once again, the logo you designed for Michael Crichton's book is being used as the centerpiece of the movie logo. Wow.
1: No, yeah. I did I didn't I did not know that. I knew that they were making a new movie, but I didn't know what it was called and I didn't know Jurassic
0: that. World and your logo is right there in the center. If you don't know about it, I'm assuming you didn't get paid for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you would assume correctly.
0: <laughs> oh, chip. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> hey, no,
1: it's like what I was just saying with the Superman story. You know, it's it's work for hire. I have no regrets about that. Publicly, <laughs> <laughs> Chip, you've written it. War- oh, I'm sorry. again. ahead. No, it's geekiness. I mean, the summer of, of 2015. That's going to be off the charts, man. Yeah, G- Star- James. Well, Star. No, I mean Star Wars, Superman, and Batman. All these insane movies are coming out.
0: We're going to start planning our calendars
1: now. Yes.
0: To see a remarkable gallery of Chip Kidd's work, you can visit his very sexy website. <laughs> you can see his TED Talk. It is absolutely marvelous. You can see all of Chip's work at chipkid.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we could talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.